Section 10 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Mathias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, Chapter 3 Imperfect Sensory Appreciation. The problem then before us is to find a means whereby a reliable sensory appreciation can be developed and maintained throughout the organism, and the basis for my argument is that both in education and in re-education this must be brought about in every case by the reliance of the individual not upon subconscious but upon conscious reasoning guidance and control. For we find that the human creature, subjected to the present processes of civilization, develops defects and imperfections in the use of the organism, even in cases where a reliable sensory appreciation has already existed on a subconscious basis, whilst in the much larger number of cases where defects have already been developed, we find that satisfactory results cannot be secured unless, during the process, a new and reliable sensory appreciation is being gradually acquired. Almost all civilized human creatures have developed a condition in which the sensory appreciation, feeling, is more or less imperfect and deceptive, and it naturally follows that it cannot be relied upon in re-education, readjustment, and coordination, or in our attempts to put right something we know to be wrong with our psychophysical selves. The connection between psychophysical defects and incorrect sensory guidance must therefore be recognized by the teacher in the practical work of re-education. Footnote. The recognition of this vital connection marks the point of departure between methods of teaching on a conscious and on a subconscious basis. And a footnote. This recognition will make it impossible for him to expect a pupil to be able to perform satisfactorily any new psychophysical act until the new correct experiences in sensory appreciation involved have become established. I will now endeavor to outline as clearly as possible the general scheme which I advocate in connection with the development of reliable sensory appreciation, first setting out the principles on which the scheme is based, then giving an illustration which will show the application of these principles to the practical work of coordination and re-education. First, then, this scheme demands, in particular on the part of the teacher, a recognition of the almost alarming dominance of the pupil's psychophysical processes by an incorrect sensory appreciation during the attempted performance of any psychophysical activity. It is therefore of primary importance that the teacher should recognize and endeavor to awaken his pupil to the facts of his, the pupil's, unreliable sensory appreciation, and that during the processes involved in the performance of the pupil's practical work, he should cultivate and develop in him the new and reliable sensory appreciation upon which a satisfactory standard of coordination depends. To this end, the mode of procedure is as follows. The teacher, having made his diagnosis of the cause or causes of the imperfections or defects which the pupil has developed in the incorrect use of himself, uses expert manipulation to give to the pupil the new sensory experiences required for the satisfactory use of the mechanisms concerned the while giving him the correct guiding orders or directions, which are the counterpart of the new sensory experiences, which he is endeavoring to develop by means of his manipulation. 
This procedure constitutes the means whereby the teacher makes it possible for the pupil to prevent inhibition, the misdirected activities which are causing his psychophysical imperfections. In this work, the inhibitory process must take first place and remain the primary factor in each and every new experience which is to be gained and become established during the cultivation and development of reliable sensory appreciation upon which a satisfactory standard of coordination depends. With this aim in view, that is, the prevention of misdirected activities, the teacher from the outset carefully explains to the pupil that his part in the scheme is very different from that which is usually assigned to pupils under other teaching methods. He tells the pupil that, on receiving the directions or guiding orders, he must not attempt to carry them out, that, on the contrary, he must inhibit the desire to do so in the case of each and every order which is given to him. He must instead project the guiding orders as given to him whilst the teacher, at the same time, by means of manipulation, will make the required readjustments and bring about the necessary coordinations, in this way performing for the pupil the particular movement or movements required, and giving him the new reliable sensory appreciation and the very best opportunity possible to connect the different guiding orders before attempting to put them into practice. This linking up of the guiding orders or directions is all-important, for it is the counterpart of that linking up of the parts of the organism which constitutes what we call coordination. The aim of re-education on a general basis is to bring about at all times and for all purposes not a series of correct positions or postures, but a coordinated use of the mechanisms in general. The second point to be noted in connection with the technique we are advocating is that the directions or guiding orders given to the pupil are based in every case on the principle of ceasing to work in blind pursuit of an end and of attending instead to the means whereby this end can be attained. We have already considered this principle in its general application, but I am anxious to lay stress upon it again at this point because it is of the utmost importance that the pupil should both accept this principle and apply it to his work in the sphere of re-education, for by no other method can he get the better of his old subconscious habits and build up consciously the new and improved condition which he is anxious to bring about. If we consider for a moment, we shall see the reason for this. For if a pupil thinks of a certain end as desirable, and starts to pursue it directly, he will certainly take the course of action in regard to it that he has been accustomed to take in like conditions. In other words, he will follow his habitual procedure in regard to it, and should that procedure happen to be a bad one for the purpose, and the fact that he needs re-education proves this to be the case, he only strengthens the incorrect experiences in connection with it by using this procedure again. If, on the other hand, the pupil stops himself from going to work in his usual way, inhibition, and proceeds to replace his old subconscious means by the new conscious means which his teacher has given him, and which he has therefore every reason to believe will bring about the desired result, he will have taken the first and most important step towards the breaking down of a habit, and towards that constructive, conscious, and reasoning control 
which tends towards a mastery of the situation. Footnote. This applies equally to the breaking of habit in every sphere of activity. And a footnote. It is therefore impressed on the pupil from the beginning that as the essential preliminary to any successful work on his part, he must refuse to work directly for his end and keep his attention entirely on the means whereby this end can be secured. In the illustration, which will shortly be given, it will be noticed that it is left to the teacher's discretion whether, in the case of a particular evolution, the pupil shall or shall not be told beforehand what the end is for which he and the teacher are working. But, in either case, everything possible is done to convince him that the end does not matter, because given, one, the teacher's knowledge of the correct means whereby the particular end can be secured, two, the pupil's correct apprehension and conscious repetition of the guiding orders or directions relating to these means whereby, three, the manipulation by the teacher who, with his expert hands, gives to the pupil the reliable sensory appreciation which should result from such directive orders, it is then merely a matter of time before the desired end will be secured. In other words, the pupil is asked to take care of the means, and the end will take care of itself. Footnote. In this connection, the length of time that may be required in the process of re-education, before the new and correct experiences can become established, has proved a stumbling block to some inquirers. But here again, if we reason the matter out, we shall see that the ability to break with habits that are sometimes very long established must depend upon certain natural aptitudes and qualities in the pupil, and especially upon the standard of acuteness of his sense perceptions and of the development of his ability to inhibit. And a footnote. In this way, all responsibility for the final result is taken off the pupil. He has no end to work for, and therefore nothing to get right. All that is asked of him is, when he receives a guiding order, to listen and wait. To wait because only by waiting can he be certain of preventing himself from relapsing into his old subconscious habits. And to listen so that he learns to remember gradually and connect up the guiding orders which are the counterpart of the means whereby the teacher is employing to bring about the desired end. In other words, he is asked to adopt consciously a principle of prevention as the basis of his practical work, and in every other way to leave the teacher a free hand. Now, it would seem that this procedure, by relieving the pupil from all responsibility as to results, should, from any common sense point of view, relieve him also from strain and anxiety. And those pupils who are satisfied that they do not know how to put themselves right, and are therefore willing to remain quietly, giving themselves certain guiding orders or directions at the prompting of the teacher, but leaving to him all responsibility in the matter of enabling them to bring about the desired results, are able to gain the new and correct experiences without strain and with a gradually increasing sense of power and control. But the teacher experienced in the work of re-education on a general basis is well aware of the difficulties which pupils actually make for themselves in this procedure. For the immediate call of instinctive habit is so insistent that unless the pupil learns to resist that call by bringing into use and developing his power to inhibit, 
he is almost certain to fall back into his old and harmful habit of blindly pursuing his end, which means that he forgets to project his directive orders, the means whereby, and falls back again for guidance upon his unreliable and delusive sensory appreciation, feeling. And it is rare in my experience to find adult pupils who are awake to the necessity of preventing themselves from falling back into their old subconscious habits, even though the necessity for this is proved to them over and over again. Very few, again, have any idea of giving themselves a guiding order or direction without making an attempt to carry it out. They do not separate the order they are asked to give from the acts or acts of which it is the forerunner. Therefore, as soon as they are asked to give a certain continuous order, they rush impulsively into action according to their habitual subconscious use of the parts concerned. This relapse into old habits is exactly what the teacher asks the pupil to prevent, because it renders a successful result impossible from the outset and reinforces all the incorrect experiences associated by the pupil with this use of the parts, the very experiences that the teacher is endeavoring to replace by new and correct ones. Let us take, for example, the case of a pupil who has been accustomed to stiffen the muscles of his neck in all his daily activities. His teacher points this out to him and explains that this habit of stiffening his neck has come about because he is endeavoring to make his neck perform the functions of other parts of his psychophysical mechanism, so that it is not an isolated defect, but connected with other harmful imperfections in the use of himself. His stiffened neck, in fact, is merely a symptom of general malcoordination in the use of the mechanisms, and any direct attempt to relax it means that he is dealing with it as a cause and not as a symptom, and such an attempt will result in comparative failure unless a satisfactory coordinated use of the mechanism in general is restored. The teacher further explains that, as the pupil's sensory appreciation is unreliable, it is unlikely that he will be able to do anything himself to remedy these defects, but that if he will inhibit his desire to stiffen his neck and give himself the guiding orders or directions to relax it, the teacher will be able, by means of manipulation, to bring about such a general readjustment of his body that, as a result, his neck will be relaxed. Footnote. In this regard, it is significant that the pupil whose sensory appreciation in connection with the use of his organism is most unreliable the pupil, for example, who quote-unquote feels that his head is going forward when he is carefully putting it back, is the one who is most unwilling to believe that he really does not know what he is doing with himself, and who, in spite of all remonstrances, will persist in trying to carry out the orders himself, instead of inhibiting this desire and allowing the teacher to assist him in carrying them out. And a footnote. If, after this explanation, the pupil gives himself the order to relax his neck, i.e. inhibits his desire to stiffen it, his teacher, provided he has the necessary knowledge and experience, will be able to assist him to bring about those general conditions upon which relaxation of the neck depends. If, on the other hand, the pupil forgets to inhibit, and so, when he is asked to order his neck to relax, 
tries to relax it by direct means, i.e. according to his own idea of relaxing it, he will in this attempt either do exactly what he has always done with his neck, i.e. stiffen it, or else bring about in one or more parts, or perhaps in the whole organism, a more or less collapsed condition. And until he stops trying to relax it by direct means, the teacher, be he ever so expert, will be able to do little towards bringing about those conditions which make for a satisfactory state of relaxation of the neck. Another difficulty which pupils make for themselves is in connection with the giving of guiding orders or directions. They speak sometimes as if it were a strange and a new thing to ask them to give themselves orders, forgetting that they have been doing this subconsciously from their earliest days, else they would not be able to stand up without help, much less move about. The point that is new in the scheme we are considering is that the pupil is asked consciously to give himself orders, evolved from a consideration of the requirements, not of a subconscious, but of a conscious reasoning use of the organism. Orders and directions, moreover, the satisfactory employment of which depends on the pupil's clear understanding, one, as to which of these orders are primary, to be given but not to be carried out, inhibition, and two, as to which are to follow and to be actually carried out. To make this clear, let us suppose that a pupil is asked by his teacher to sit down. Now, if he obeys this order at once and sits down, he will be guided in doing so by the unreliable sensory appreciation established in connection with the performance of the act in his case. That is, he will simply repeat his usual faulty subconscious manner of sitting down. The object of his re-education is to eradicate such psychophysical faults, and so, as soon as he is asked to sit down, he immediately says no, and gives himself the order not to sit down, thereby inhibiting the misdirected activity hitherto connected with the act, a procedure which prevents indulgence in the old subconscious faults. The old faulty activity being prevented by the processes just indicated, the pupil will then proceed to give his attention to the different guiding or directing orders which the teacher considers essential to the correct direction and control of those psychomechanics, the correct means whereby, concerned with the satisfactory use of the organism as a whole in the act of sitting down. These are the orders to be ultimately carried out by the pupil. It follows, then, that the orders which are to be given but not to be carried out are those which, if carried out, would result in the habitual faulty use of the mechanisms. They can therefore be referred to as preventive orders. All orders which follow preventive orders are to be carried out, at first by the teacher, for if the teaching technique is reliable, such orders will be concerned with the correct means whereby a new and coordinated use of the mechanism can be secured. I have already pointed out that children, from the first moment of school life onward, manifest a lack of inhibitory development, and the fact that in most cases they learn to obey orders at once, without stopping to consider the why and the wherefore, is a contributing factor to this harmful condition. Footnote. I know that I shall be told that if children are to be taught to inhibit in the sense in which I use the word, i.e. the prevention of misdirected activities, 
so much time will be taken up in this part of the work that they will not be able to get through their studies. Children have said to me more than once in this connection, I could not stop like this at school, they tell us to hurry. In answer, I can only say that time spent in teaching children to inhibit impulses to unreasoning activity, to which otherwise they must later on become slaves, is time not lost, but actually saved. And a footnote. As a result of this early training, many pupils have become so accustomed to react quickly and subconsciously to any direction that they receive, or to any idea that comes to them, that this quick and unthinking reaction has become a habit with them that they find hard to break. And so, when pupils insist that giving orders is a difficulty, what they really mean is that because of their long-established habit of reacting quickly and unthinkingly to a direction, a habit fostered by years of training, they find it difficult to stop, to wait, to be content just to give orders and to say no, when the impulse comes to carry the orders out. In other words, they find it difficult not to want to be obedient, not to want to be right, not to work directly for their end. The difficulty, however, as in the case of most human difficulties, lies not in the thing itself, but in the breaking of a habit, the indulgence of which not only impedes the pupil's progress, but, if persisted in, makes it impossible for him to achieve his desired end. It will be found that, in every case, a pupil's success in achieving an end will depend upon his practical recognition of the fact that only by continually attending to the means whereby essential to the successful achievement of his end can a satisfactory result be secured. This applies equally, one, whether the pupil is in the early stages of his work, where he is asked merely to give orders and to leave the carrying out of these orders to the teacher, two, whether he has reached a later stage where, under his teacher's supervision, he is gradually developing a reliable sensory appreciation upon which he can rely in carrying out the orders himself, or three, whether he is working by himself at his ordinary activities outside. Our discussion of inhibition in the foregoing leads us to the consideration of the individual's ability to wait, inhibit, before reacting to a stimulus or stimuli to pursue some end in the ordinary way of life, and it may be of interest to give some facts in regard to the experiences in this connection of people taking lessons in speaking, breathing, singing, etc. Footnote. This wait is to give himself time to comprehend and consciously rehearse the orders which are the counterpart of the correct means whereby he is to attain his end. And a footnote. Most people who need lessons in speaking have a tendency to speak too quickly, and they fail to pause to wait between their sentences. This tendency, of course, has to be checked. But in the work of re-education on a conscious plane, we do not try to check the tendency directly, but rely instead on the use of certain means whereby, which will indirectly bring about the desired result. Therefore, instead of telling the pupil directly to pause in certain places, the teacher points out to him that he is gasping at the end of his lines or sentences, and that he is sniffing or sucking in air through the mouth, and he endeavors to make the pupil realize that these bad habits are the result of his incorrect subconscious conceptions in connection with the act of breathing, 
and with the incorrect use of the psychophysical mechanisms upon the correct use of which satisfactory breathing depends. From this it follows that in all vocal use the pupil must have a correct conception as to the nature of the respiratory act, associated with a conscious, reasoned understanding of the principles underlying the correct use of the psychomechanics involved in the act of breathing, before he makes any attempt to put these principles into practice. When this point has been reached, the teacher will be justified in asking the pupil to stop, to wait at the end of each sentence in speaking or reading, or at the end of each phrase in singing, and to refuse to take another breath until he has inhibited the habitually incorrect subconscious guidance and directions concerned with the act of taking a breath, which in his case is responsible for the imperfect uses of the mechanism as diagnosed by his teacher, and further has substituted for these imperfect uses the new correct conscious orders which make for increasingly satisfactory use. The teacher therefore asks him to perform 1. An inhibitory act, by inhibiting his way of taking breath, in other words, by preventing or holding in check, in connection with the act, the wrong subconscious guidance and directions which constitutes the bad habit he has formed when taking breath at the end of each sentence. 2. A volitionary act, by giving himself certain orders which are the means whereby a more satisfactory act of inspiration may gradually be cultivated before he attempts to go on to the next sentence. Now, in connection with the latter act, the pupil will very likely raise the objection that if he stops to give the new orders before going on to speak, he will attract unpleasant attention to himself, because he will have to wait so long between his sentences that his way of speaking will appear slow and stilted. This objection only means, however, that he has not realized that his old habit of breathing audibly through the mouth, instead of through the nostrils, and of running his sentences into one another, were noticeable defects to other people, however little he may have been aware of them himself. He is quick enough to object to the new way of speaking, which he believes will draw unpleasant attention to himself, and also to the new instructions, because in carrying these out he is forced to break with habits which are familiar and therefore satisfying to him. But he is not so quick to observe defects in his own old way. Once, however, he has been taught to act in accordance with the new instructions, his defects will gradually disappear, because he will have learned to prevent the wrong use of the mechanisms responsible for these defects. The time taken to give, first, the preventive order to stop and wait at the end of the vocal effort, and secondly, the correct directing and controlling orders in connection with the processes concerned with the respiratory act, will constitute the necessary pause between the sentences. After this, it is merely a matter of time before the activities which result from the series of psychophysical experiences detailed above become continuously operative, and because they are now consciously directed, they will be henceforth under the pupil's constructive conscious guidance and control. The same difficulty is encountered in any pupil who breathes imperfectly immediately he begins the actual practice of singing. This pupil also is so intent on his end, singing, that he finds it irksome to wait to take breath properly. He also sniffs and sucks in air through the mouth, 
instead of through the nostrils, and as a rule, audibly. It is unlikely that such defects as these can be eradicated or that the cultivation of new defects can be prevented by those processes which we find associated with breathing exercises or lessons in deep breathing. But if the pupil attacks his difficulties, i.e. his general condition of malcoordination, by means of re-education on a plane of constructive conscious control, he can be helped to overcome them by learning, firstly, to hold in check his subconscious desire to take breath at the end of each phrase, inhibitory act, and secondly, to give the guiding orders and directions in connection with the correct psychomechanics of respiration, volitionary act. The pupil will also probably make the objection that he cannot pause, giving as his reason that, if he pauses, he cannot keep time in his song. This objection, of course, will not hold any more than the previous one, for when once the necessary control has been gained, the pause required for inhibition and for giving the necessary orders will only be momentary. But even if we suppose, for the sake of argument, that the objection holds, of what avail can it be to keep time if thereby the primary principles which are essential to good singing, namely those concerned with the correct and adequate use of the psychophysical mechanisms connected with respiration, are treated in practice as secondary factors and are being actually perverted in use. In all these considerations, we must bear in mind that in the sphere of acquiring satisfactory psychophysical functioning, though speed will follow as the result of the necessary experience in the correct use of the parts concerned, the correct use can hardly follow a speed which has been achieved at the cost of an incorrect use of those parts. Now that I have indicated the principles which underlie the general scheme which I advocate in connection with the development of a reliable sensory appreciation, I will go on to describe in detail one of the technical evolutions which I use in my teaching. It is given as an illustration of what should be the attitude of the pupil towards the practical work in connection with the cultivation and development of the new sensory appreciation during the processes involved in the performance of the evolution, but more particularly as an illustration of the means whereby we may develop a reliable sensory appreciation of the minimum of so-called physical tension. For in this sphere of sensory appreciation, the most difficult problem to be solved in most cases is concerned with a matter of developing a correct register of the due and proper amount of so-called muscular tension necessary at a given time. It is not possible, of course, to tell the pupil in terms of relativity the degree of muscular tension which will be his or her required minimum at any particular moment. Furthermore, even if this were possible, what chance is there that the pupil will be able to register this minimum accurately, when the very factor upon which he will rely for guidance in this connection, viz. his sensory appreciation, is unreliable, inaccurate, and often positively delusive. I have known cases where a pupil failed to recognize a difference in muscular tension whether his arms were hanging loosely at his sides, as in the act of walking, or were being used for the performance of an act requiring extreme tension. The question, then, of dealing with the matter of a correct or incorrect degree of physical tension is probably, from the teacher's point of view, the most difficult problem to be solved in the scheme that we are considering. 
It is clear that this problem cannot be solved by the technique involved in the performance of physical exercises as such, and the chief danger involved in the performance of exercises associated with systems of physical culture, posture, etc., lies in the fact that this fundamental difficulty concerned with muscular tension has been ignored. If ever a plan of development by means of exercises to be performed, according to written or spoken instructions, minus the manipulative help, is to be evolved, this problem will have to be satisfactorily solved. I claim, however, that in its particular application to the evolution about to be described, this problem has been solved, and in a very practical way, and the unfolding of this part of the technique should prove of great interest to the student. Special attention is directed in this connection to the instructions given in the following illustration to the pupil in regard to the work to be done with his hands and arms, associated with a more or less coordinated body, and particularly to the position of his fingers, wrists, and elbows when placed on the chair as directed. I would add that the correct performance of this evolution calls for the coordinated use of the body, legs, and arms, and of the muscular system in general. It calls in particular for their coordinated use during the movement of bringing the body forward, and during the act of placing the hands in position on the top rail of the chair, also during the final work to be done with the hands and arms in this position. I want it to be very clearly understood that when I write of the arms, legs, hands, feet, etc., I always imply their coordinated use with the body as a coordinated support. Indeed, we might say that in this sense the body represents the trunk of a tree and the arms the limbs. It must be clearly understood that in what follows it is taken for granted that the pupil gives special attention to the primary principles laid down for him by his teacher before he attempts to carry out any instructions given him. If this is done, the majority of the experiences that the pupil receives should be correct experiences, thus making for the development of confidence and for the continuance of the processes involved in the eradication of defects. Footnote. It is not possible, of course, to give here all the detailed instructions that would meet every case, because these instructions naturally vary according to the tendencies and peculiarities of the particular pupil. An experienced teacher, however, should be able to supply these instructions in the practical application of the technique to meet the needs of the individual case. We must learn in this connection to differentiate between the variations of a teacher's art and the principles of the teaching technique which is being employed. End of footnote. End of section 10.